Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, your co-host and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. And once again, my usual co-host, John Yu, who's running in from some bakery in Berkeley usually, is nowhere to be found. John is actually trapped in, in one of those never-ending academic conferences, and so he is going to miss... An incredible conversation with a fantastic guest today. We are very, very happy to welcome Adrian Woolridge to join us on the Pacific Century. Those of you uh, who read The Economist magazine, as we assume most of you do in our listening audience, know Adrian. He is the political editor of The Economist and also the the Badgett columnist. Uh, He earned his doctorate in history from Oxford University, specifically at All Souls, where he was a fellow. Uh, He has worked for The Economist for several decades and is the author of 10 previous books, uh, including The Right Nation, Capitalism in America, The Fourth Revolution, and many others. He has a brand new book out, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. And that is what we are going to talk to Adrian about. So Adrian, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we are very excited to talk with you maybe a little bit differently about, uh, hopefully a little bit differently about how you usually talk about this this book to a Western audience, because we want to talk about Asia. Now, now there's, there's a question to start off with, which is whether you, a product of Oxford and at The Economist, the world's most prestigious newspaper, or as you call it, uh, you call it a newspaper, we call it a magazine, and me working at Stanford with all due respect to Oxford, the world's preeminent university, whether we're the best people to talk about meritocracy or, quite frankly, the worst people to talk about meritocracy. And you you actually address this issue of, of trying to get inside the bubble of meritocracy and understand not only its historical evolution, which are fascinating chapters to a historian as I am, uh, his, uh, meritocracy in the West, meritocracy in the ancient world, meritocracy in Asia, but more importantly, the question of meritocracy today and the attacks on meritocracy. So there's a ton that we could talk to you about, about the West, about America, about what's going on here, but we really want to focus in on Asia. Can we, I, I think perhaps it's best to start off with a, a, a quote or a claim that you make, which is that in the West, of course, as we grapple over the question of, of should we even have meritocracy or how should it be changed, to do so at a time when China in particular is re-embracing meritocracy is to commit civilizational suicide. What do you mean by that? I mean that for the last 400, 500 years, the West has been dominant in the world. It's been dominant for a whole series of reasons because it's embraced scientific innovation, technological innovation, capitalism, um, but also meritocracy. And by being dominant, it has really laid down the rules which the rest of the world um, lives by. Um, And I think because that's been the case for so long, we tend to take that for granted. But of course, it wasn't the case before, let's say, 1600. Uh, when China was probably the, the the single most important power in the world. And there's no reason to think that it will be the case in the future. It will only be the case in the future 
if the West continues to do the right thing and doesn't make the mistake of doing the wrong thing. And I think we're about to commit civilizational suicide because we're about to take one of the most important tools of our success and dilute it or even get rid of it. Uh, some people would like to dilute it and many other people would like to get rid of it. And I think that the, the question that we need to face in the future is whether meritocracy is going to be a servant of democracy and liberalism or whether we're going to allow it to become a servant essentially of, of autocracy and Chinese uh, China's top-down economic model because both, both societies not, could now claim meritocracy. So if we're talking about meritocracy, explain to us a little bit. You have a wonderful historical chapter on meritocracy in China uh, back in, in the, uh, the, the Qing era and before the Qing era into the Ming era and even before that, the Tang era as it goes backwards, ultimately to the idea that Confucius brought out, which was that men of great talent should be found throughout the land regardless of, of station and and be given the chance to rise up. Um, but if you if you frame the question as one of whether meritocracy is at the um is going to be the handmaiden of of democracy or authoritarianism, um, tell us a little bit about, if you would, meritocracy in China today. Uh, again, we think of this as a leveling construct for our societies. Is it a leveling construct in China still? There is no democracy. So how does it work? Well, let me let me step back for uh, for a minute in order to ask your question and and then focus uh, on the question. I mean, meritocracy is the idea that people should be judged um, on the basis of their particular individual abilities and talents, um, and not on the basis of where they're born in society or of their social connections. Uh, and throughout most of history, um, I think that society has been ordered on the basis of very unmeritocratic, pre-meritocratic values. So you inherited your station and jobs were allocated, not on the basis of your ability to do those jobs, but on the basis of patronage, connection, and indeed they were bought and sold. Um, that's been the rule throughout most of history. There are two big exceptions here. One is Plato, who very early on says that individuals should be allocated to positions according to their innate talents. He talks about men of gold, men of silver, and men of bronze. And the other great exception is Confucius, who also says we need to sift through the whole of society in order to find talented people and turn them into the, 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 the servants of the, the, the emperor uh, or the ruling power, essentially. Now, the big difference between Plato and Confucius is that Confucius's ideas actually become a governing system. Plato's influence certain governments, but they're basically marginal. It's basically a thought experiment. With Confucius, it is taken up, and from a very early period onwards, China erects a sort of examination state um, very early on. So at a sort of time when England was ruled by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, who got their position by using their bloody axe to beat their opponents down. China was being governed by people who were selected on the basis of their performance in examinations. And indeed, if you take, let's say, the, the, the 16th century, about 10% of the population, I believe, would be going through these examinations at any one point. So it was a massive system, obviously a bit... Um, biased towards the landed elites and people who could afford to, to educate their children, but not entirely that. And there was the genuine notion that you would search the population for people who had this intellectual capacity, this ability to appreciate uh, poetry and to appreciate the finer things of life and turn them into scholar bureaucrats. 
Um, and that, that, that was the sort of default position of China throughout much of its history until the early 20th, 20th century. And that is an extraordinary idea. It's an extraordinary idea, and it, China was extraordinarily successful in doing that. Now, what happens at the beginning of the 20th century is that idea is rejected. Um, and it's rejected primarily, I think, because it's become antiquated. It's become associated with uh, an ossified system. So China's examination system, unlike Europe's, doesn't move with the times. It doesn't adjust to the rise of engineering and science and, 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 and biology and things like that. It's simply focused on the classics and on, on collect, selecting people who can, who can master these Confucius texts. Confucian texts. So there's uh, a rejection of that system and it collapses. But I think in many ways it's being reconstructed at the moment. So you've got the, 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 a massive social emphasis on um, examinations, a massive social emphasis on um, trying to find by various performance tests plus examinations the best and brightest uh, bureaucrats and also the revival of this system that the Chinese had of meritocracy being something from the top down that the top the emperor selects people to reinforce uh, their power and to carry out their will across the country only this time and this is why I use such a such an explosive phrase as civilizational suicide this time China is not selecting people on the basis of Confucian uh, texts. It's selecting people on the basis of their ability to master the subjects, the disciplines, technology, science, computers, biotechnology, genetics, and the rest of the disciplines that are shaping the future, that will give you not just um, civilization, but also economic and therefore military military power. And China seems to be very dedicated to this, this mission of of merit selection. It's interesting. You you point out that uh, among the top leadership, including Xi Jinping himself, uh, the majority uh, are engineers. Uh, and if and we can go back, of course, if we look at uh, Japan after the Meiji Restoration and the emphasis again on developing what back then would have been the leading scientific and and technological abilities to bring into government. We we in the West have a very different idea, right? We 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 the majority of our lawmakers in the United States are lawyers. Uh, I don't know if that's the case uh, in Britain. In fact, I remember when George W. Bush was elected for a bit, there was a lot made out of the fact that he was the first president with an MBA, right? But we still have the idea that you're a, a, a lawyer, uh, you're, you might be you know, something else in the humanities, uh, a, a professional, but not, uh, not a technocrat. Um, why is it? Is it simply a, a late developer model that has pushed China and before that pushed Korea and Japan into seeking meritocratic excellence among uh, the engineers and the technocrats? Why haven't they brought forth uh, the lawyers and and the philosophers and, and the like? I think a lot of it was a sort of a, a, a desperate correction of the old system because the old system was so exclusively focused on on classical Chinese civilization and the, the, the great texts of Confucius, they, they corrected. In many ways, they overcorrected. Um, they said, look, we, we, we were, before we were denied the tools of scientific, scientific and engineering success, so we were crushed by the West. Now we need to make sure that we have these, these tools. In, in, in the United States, of course, there is a very significant focus on, on legal education. In Britain, legal education is much more marginal than it is in the United States. And the, I would say the majority 
majority of lawmakers now probably did PPE, mm-hmm. you know, philosophy, politics, and economics. Mm-hmm. In the hundred years ago, they would have done um, classics, um, uh, which, which in some ways is a very Confucian idea. And indeed, you know, we talk about our civil servants as mandarins, and a lot of our open competition and examination civil service systems in Britain at least were deliberately modelled on the Chinese uh, Chinese system. We went over to China. We had successful commercial relations with China, but we saw how impressive these civil servants were. So we, you know, we tried to design a, in some ways a similar system, but looking at, at, at Greece and Rome rather than, rather than Confucius. But um, I do think that um, this does give uh, a sort of flavour to, to, to China in the sense that if you're um, an engineer you see the world as a series of symptom, uh, a, si- a series of systems that need to be perfected, and people as being parts of those those systems. So it doesn't take you very long to get from engineering to social engineering, as it were. So mm-hmm. again, it's this top down um, way of looking at, uh, at things in which politics is something imposed on the people rather than something that arises from the from the people. Um, and it does, you know, this, this idea of the engineer also being a social engineer, I think is, 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 is very profoundly embedded in the system. And I don't see, I mean, I think there are slightly fewer engineers now than there were in 2010, but basically it's right. still, it's still, it's, it's still, a, and she, she is of course um, very much in that, um, in that mold. And he is, you know, the one who camps. <laughs> right. And interestingly, if I remember, you know, I actually forgot to look this up. And I know our listeners who are, are well-versed in, in Chinese history will jump uh, down my throat if I get it wrong. But interestingly, given what you just mentioned about China, if if, if I remember correctly, Mao was, was, a, was a classic student. I mean, he was a university student when he got involved in uh, in the Communist Party. Um, and he wasn't a technocrat. He wasn't an engineer himself. I, I don't know if that's the case. I have a dim memory that it may be the case, but I know that the, well, everybody out there listening to this knows more about it than me. We'll but, get um, corrected, believe yeah, me, yes. if uh, yeah. my, my, our, our friend Rana Mitter will be one of the first to yeah. call in and say, of course, you got yeah. that wrong. But so so let's let's then turn to the, to the great question that actually bedevils China as much as it bedevils us and it, and it bedevils uh, other Asian countries that deal with uh, or have have structured their systems on meritocracy, which is, of course, the aristocracy of meritocracy, and then to the point of your book, the aristocracy of talent. Xi Jinping himself is uh, the, the leading member of the class of what are known as the princelings. Their, their, their fathers and grandfathers marched with Mao. They were leading communist cadres. Uh, in Japan, they don't use the term, but it's it's almost the same, uh, that there are princelings, former uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who stepped down last year after being the longest-serving post-war Japanese premier. His father was foreign minister. His grandfather was prime minister in the in the Japanese diet today. I forget the exact number, but it's it's a significant percentage, 40 to 60, if I remember, of second and third generation families holding uh, represent, representative seats. So um, we, we talk about it in America. Uh, uh, many people have talked about it. You discuss it in the book, of course, associative mating and, and, and concentration of wealth. But to our conversation. It's happening in China. It's happening in Japan, Korea, and other places. What What is the issue, and, and why, uh, if these places had this purer, so to speak, especially in China, longstanding tradition of meritocracy, why are they affected with the same ills that we are, and how bad is it? 
let, let me again stand back and, 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 and answer the question with a, bit of, a little bit of historical perspective. I think meritocracy, when it takes off in the West from the um, late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, is something that is opening up opportunities. It's creating more opportunities for people to come from the bottom of society and to work their way up. And that sort of uh, spirit of opening things up in the in, in the West really comes to, to its fruition with the Second World War and the two decades after the Second World War. And you see an enormous upsurge of social mobility and the idea that the common man is being allowed to do sorts of things, go to Harvard, go to Stanford, uh, 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 go to Oxford, that they would never have been allowed to uh, before. And then something begins to change uh, from, I would say, the, 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 the 60s, certainly the 70s onwards. And that is that you get a marriage between money and merit, that the old rich, um, people who've been rich for generations, begin to grasp or begin to emphasize the importance of their children getting a real education, being academically successful. And the new rich who've made it through the meritocratic system begin to get a sense of trying to consolidate their positions by buying educational privilege for their children. And so uh, from both ends, you get an emphasis on buying educational success, but educational success is the way in which you shore up your social position. So you get in the 70s and even more in the 80s and 90s, this marriage of, of, of merit and money. And you see it in the British public schools, which go in this period, for, uh, by public schools, I mean private schools, which go in, the, in this period from being basically schools which, which um, shape character and which value themselves in their ability to shape character to being institutions which focus on academic success. Uh, so Eton goes from being a character-based school to, to a really very successful brains-based school. And you see exactly the same thing happening in the uh, Ivy League American universities. They go from being character-based sort of thing with a bit of academics thrown in to being almost purely, you know, you have to get very, very strong academic results to get in and, and, and to succeed in those institutions. So I think the West laid down the framework for this, but now it's happening in China as well, that you're, you're beginning to get a sense in which everybody... Uh, consolidates their position or preserves their position by academic performance and that that academic performance can be bought by sending your children to the best prep schools to the best cramming schools and by not buying their way into universities because you have to get the exam results but by making sure that you're the people who will get the best uh, exam results so if you look at the elite chinese universities and if you look at the sort of chinese people who go to stanford and go to harvard and the rest of it they do tend to come from the elites from the, the, the families of the Red Princes uh, and the rest of it. So you get these people from the top of society, either from very old established families, I mean, old by, China, but by, by communist terms, or by new people who've done really well um, in, in, the, in the knowledge professions or in um, the, the technical professions, you know, making sure that their children have a sparkling CV and a sparkling education. That's the way that China is going. And there are other countries uh, in that region of the world who've gone in that direction earlier. Singapore being, being a clear example, South Korea being another uh, clear example of these things. I actually think that if you look at the figures um, China is probably doing better than the United States. If you look at the elite universities, I think they probably have 
a higher proportion of their children, of their students from blue collar backgrounds than let's say Harvard does. I won't quote the Stanford figures, but I think Harvard, you know, 90% um, of students at Harvard come from the top 1% of the population in terms of uh, the wealth of their parents. I mean, it's an extre extremely uh, exclusive system. I think the figures in, in uh, China are not as dramatic as that. But you're certainly getting the beginning of the same thing, which is you're getting a hereditary meritocracy. And hereditary meritocracy ought to be a contradiction in terms because meritocracy ought to be about um, resorting children in every generation. As Plato says, you have to resort the, the, the social system in every generation to make sure that innate abilities and social positions are aligned with each other. Well, that's what I believe. But there are other people who think that meritocracy by its nature becomes hereditary because the combination of nature and nurture creates a class of people who are so privileged both in terms of their genetic abilities and in terms of their social backgrounds they will inevitably dominate society cling on to power i don't believe that because i think problem things such as regression to the mean mendelian inheritance the sorting of uh, of genes in each new generation does create a perpetual process of social mobility but there are other people who who, who would disagree with that Let's uh, let me take that a little bit further, and it's hard again not to always draw it back to our own uh, experience and, quite frankly, our own struggles over this right now. But there, there seems to be in terms of uh, for for China and and in fact many of the of the East Asian countries, a bit of a of a. Um, uh, a conundrum at the heart of meritocracy, a a, uh, a contradiction, which is, uh, as, as we understand meritocracy, it should be for the individual, right? You're allowing individuals to come up under conditions that they might not have otherwise, and certainly under traditional hierarchical caste-based uh, and class-based, but in particular in East Asia, caste-based systems. Um, the, the, the argument here in the United States is, is that um, because of inherent inequalities, um, it, we shouldn't be thinking about people as individuals because they're not going to get a fair individual shot. We instead should be lumping them into, into group categories. Now, in China, of course, there is no political basis, I mean, despite you know, boilerplate, there is no political basis of individualism and political individualism. And yet meritocracy, as we understand it, is based on the individual. So is there, is there a contradiction at the heart of meritocracy that, that may cause problems for China? Have they figured out a way to, to, uh, to basically diffuse the, the inherent individuality that comes out of a meritocratic process into a more group-based system? Or is that misreading what they're doing? Well, I think that meritocracy is essentially liberal, um, because it is about individuals discovering their talents and expressing their talents and competing with each other to see who is the most fit for particular jobs. So I think that the liberal revolution of the 19th century um, and the meritocratic revolution of the 19th century are part and parcel of each other. But there is another tradition within meritocracy, which would say basically that you have an elite in society and the job of that elite is to select the few people who um, are clever enough to join the elite. So Jefferson talks about, well, you know, Jefferson, uh, you know, it's very much his view is very much the view from the top of society saying we must select 
people from right across society who are willing and able to join us in this great business of running the running the republic. This is a this is a top-down view. So there has been a top-down down view, but that's basically, I think, quite marginal to the, the Western tradition. The Western tradition is essentially about individuals coming up from the bottom and making it on their own terms, on the basis of their own abilities. The Chinese view is very different. The Chinese view is essentially you take the state or the emperor, who's the embodiment of the state, and you tug up people from the whole of society um, who can fill in, uh, who can serve the emperor well. And these people, if you look at the, the, Mandarin, the, the, the Mandarin tradition, the Mandarin tradition is very much about these people not expressing their individual talents, but fitting in with a very, very rigid social mold, learning the Confucian texts. And a very important part of that, this text, as I believe, um, is... is duty to your family, being self-effacing, duty to the state, um, almost turning yourself into a vehicle for a great civilization rather than, rather than being, being somebody who's going to do something innovative or new. In other words, society and its ideal is, is, is self-replicating. It doesn't change very much. So I do think there's, there's a problem there. There's also, but there's also a very interesting problem with the, the current American liberal view of um, meritocracy. And the liberal view of meritocracy, as I say, is about individuals expressing their abilities and getting a position that's appropriate to their individual abilities. It's an individualistic view. But then this comes across the issue of the fact that you have different, significant differences in, uh, in, perform in, in average performance between groups. Uh, and if you've got these differences in average performance between, between groups, I mean particularly the African-American population, you have to say to yourself, is it good enough to have a society based purely on individualism if the result of that is going to be that some groups, for whatever reason, remain in a marginal position? And America as a society has concluded that it's not good enough, that you have to make certain concessions to group rights or group claims because uh, because there are certain prejudices that have been expressed against certain groups and have resulted in those groups being excluded from opportunities. So you have to have systems of affirmative action which take into account historical disparities of treatment between groups. Now, the, I think the, uh, the liberal view, my view, is that we do need to do that, uh, but it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. And the, me and, and the end in itself is to have a society purely based uh, on, on, on individual achievement and attainment and ability in which group identities are um, ignored. But that can only be done when you've made up for the, the legacy of discrimination and slavery, which means that one, one particular group is not doing as well as other groups. Well, it's interesting to, to think about that in the Chinese context. And, and I don't know, I don't, I don't remember it in the book, but I don't know if anybody's actually uh, carefully looked at it, is the degree to which the Chinese system, and, and we there are other nations in Asia, as we mentioned, that, that practice meritocratic systems. We focus a lot on China, but the degree to which China, uh, and, and in fact, we could bring in Japan, actually try to bring in marginalized groups through meritocratic processes. So in China, you could think of uh, ethnic minorities such as the Uyghur uh, or, or even religious minorities, um, certainly looking down in the south, which is a uh, in the far south, sort of the Vietnam border, which is a 
traditionally less developed part of China. Of course, you look at Inner Mongolia. Uh, in Japan, you you would look, for example, at uh, Koreans, uh, uh, Japanese of Korean descent, uh, or the Burakumin, the, um, the 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 undercasts, uh, and actually look if if there is uh, in in their very meritocratic systems an attempt to cast that net as widely uh, as possible. In China today, of course, under Xi, there is a, a, a Han resurgence, which is to basically make Han the, the center of, of all Chinese policy. So that, that, that's an interesting question. Well, one of, the, one of the things that sort of I found most fascinating about writing this book was when I was looking at the history of the Chinese examination state, you know, right the way back to, 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 to the early modern period and the Middle Ages, was that almost every problem that we've come across uh, and almost every debate that we have today in meritocracy, uh, about meritocracy, they'd also had. So they developed a system of, uh, of, 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 of copying. The, so you, you do your examination, you write out your results, and then somebody would come along and copy them. Um, to give to the examiner because they were worried that the examiner would see somebody's handwriting and then then, then favoritize that person. You know, they say, I know that person, I taught him, um, I'll give him a good mark because I recognize that handwriting. So they, they were sort of doing everything they could to make sure that the system was as, 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 as undistorted by, by, by prejudice and opinion. And of course, the, the examinations, they would lock people in these great examination factories and make sure they couldn't cheat and things like that. But another thing that I noticed was that they were setting different, they were setting targets for recruiting people from different geographical regions of China, which would also presumably reflect different ethnic groups, to make sure that the system wasn't just dominated by Peking or, 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 or the cultural centres, but to make sure that you were getting enough people in the bureaucracy from all over the, 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 the country. So you'd have different passing marks for different areas of the country. So they were using a system essentially of affirmative action to make sure that you were representing different groups and particularly geographical groups um, within, within the elite. But the most interesting, I think, the, and I haven't, I apologize, I haven't studied this enough, but the most interesting example I would have thought for this ethnic issue would be Singapore which, of course, is in many ways the world's leading meritocracy um, and the, the country which has taken it uh, uh, meritocracy as far as anybody else. And I think Lee Kuan Yew was one of the great thinkers on the subject of, of meritocracy. But, of course, they have, um, you know, massive, eth you know, uh, they have a, a very diverse uh, population ethnically, uh, and they're very concerned that they that, that elite positions aren't just dominated by the Han Chinese, and have done everything they possibly can, you know, to to make sure that isn't the case from mixing their their housing developments. And I'm sure they must do exactly the same. They must have an elaborate system of marking to make sure that no one group does significantly better than other groups. Well, that raises a, a question then, uh, as we're, we're nearing the, the end of, of our time, but it raises a, a question about, uh, and maybe you've given us the answer, who, well, obviously you believe meritocracy should survive. You, you yes. don't believe uh, with people like Michael Sandel that we need to sort of root it out or, or fundamentally transform yeah. it. Um, and, and that's the great debate we're having in the West, should meritocracy survive? Uh, and, and yet, does it need to be reformed in ways? And, and there are some who would argue that it has become uh, less representative, not only in terms of, of class, but in terms of just the, the, the freezing of those who are already uh, in power um, 
that it, it's just it, it's it's become reflective of demands for different types of social remediation, uh, which is again not what we seem to see yet in East Asia. So I guess an interesting question is to you: Who does meritocracy best? Is it Singapore? Is it someone else? I would say the country that does meritocracy best is probably Singapore, Singapore at the moment. And I think Singapore has done this marvelous thing of combining the sort of the Confucian tradition um, with the Western tradition. Lee Kuan Yew went to Cambridge and he was very, very preoccupied by the by the Western tradition and, uh, 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 as it was as it was was practiced. And he was very learned in all of these sorts of variations. And as I say he's tempered that with a sense of making sure that you preserve ethnic diversity in the elites. And if you look at the something like uh, Raffles College, it's just incredibly successful at uh, selecting people from right across society and in getting them into elite universities. I mean, it's not a perfect system, you know, it's, you know, there's a problem with creativity, there's a problem with rote learning, there's a, there's a problem with a certain freezing of the, of the elites. But I think Singapore has certainly made a huge effort to do meritocracy well. I would also say that, you know, the problem we talk, people are really preoccupied with in America is the problem of the congealing of an elite at the top. I don't believe that's um, primarily the result of meritocracy. I think in many ways it's the the result of, uh, of pre-meritocratic systems, again, to quote, quote, quote Harvard, which I'm sure you, you, you'd like me to do um, sitting there in Stanford, is you have, you know, 40-plus um, percent of the places given to people on the basis of legacy, whether their parents went to Harvard, whether their parents teach at Harvard or on the staff at Harvard, uh, whether they're athletic scholars, whether they're on the dean's list. That's an extraordinary percentage of people to be given positions not on the basis of merits. And we, we know that 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 the Chinese Americans have been particularly Angry Asian Americans have been particularly angry about this because these are the people who bear the, the 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 biggest brunt of the of the cost of this. So I would say right. that what America needs to do is to push forward with meritocracy and and get rid of all these overhangs from from the previous from the previous system. Well, apropos of your your, your Harvard references before it's being at Stanford, I taught at Yale, so you've doubly insulted. Uh, the listening audience right now, but that's that's fine. Okay, so now we now we go to the fun round. Usually, uh, when John is here, he he comes up with some some interesting fun fun questions. But you you have a fantastic quote in the book that we are actually going to put uh, at the front of of the uh, when people hear this, they're going to hear this at the front of the uh, the podcast. You have a fantastic quote from one of the great movies of all time, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And uh, I'm not going to repeat it because our, our listeners will already have heard the quote. But this raises the question for you, Adrian Woolridge. Please name for us the top three best meritocratic movies of all time, meaning the movies that celebrated implicitly or explicitly meritocracy. What do you say? Well, Glenn, 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 Glenn Ross is certainly not one of those movies because it, uh, it it is a massive criticism of uh, of meritocracy and rightly right. so in, in, in that sense and the quotation is a wonderful book um, i'm not sure i can do three but let me say that i think the greatest celebration of meritocracy is the history boys alan bennett's oh yes uh, play and film because that's basically about a bunch a group of uh boys who go to a grammar school essentially they come from 
poor, well, ordinary backgrounds, not poor backgrounds, but ordinary backgrounds, and they study history and they're taught history by a very inspiring history teacher and who's trying to get them into Oxford um, or Cambridge, I think Oxford at the time, but in, 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 into an elite university. And I think what this shows is that is not just that you, it shows the power, not just of aspiration, um, but the power of education and learning to transform people's lives. Because you can see as these people begin, begin to discuss history as a serious academic discipline, not just a collection of facts that they, um, that they have to absorb, but there's something where you can have an interplay of ideas and excitement about ideas. These, these people's lives being transformed, their, their minds broadening and their perspectives on the world broadening. And I think that tradition of um, grammar school education, particularly in history, and I'm talking about myself here to some extent, since I did history at the grammar school, um, was allowed to die in this country. And it's, it's a, I mean, by this country, Britain. And I think it's a tragedy that it was allowed to die. And I think that Alan Bennett did brilliantly um, celebrates uh, that tradition. He was very much himself a product of that tradition. As a former history professor, I, I am really happy to hear you say that. It should remind people again, that's the, the History Boys, which was a wonderful movie. I know it was a, a play, I think, yeah. originally. It was a play. wonderful yeah. movie. Yeah. We should yeah. actually have, let's have the listeners uh, write us in, write, write in uh, which you think are your favorite meritocratic movies. I would mention, uh, and, and you know, when you think about it in a way, uh, and, and as you point out in the book, I mean, it's sort of at the core of the American belief, American individualism, yes. the opportunity. It's sort of in our DNA in a way that we, we it's like air. We don't think about it. Uh, one fun one I would mention, I think, is the right stuff. You know, again, the, the, yes, the meritocratic ideal of men. Yeah. In this case, it happens to be men, but it's yeah. men who uh, are brought from all different backgrounds. And you have to truly be the best, not only to succeed, but to survive. And, and I think there's something that really yeah. resonated with Americans uh, and Tom Wolfe's, which was a fantastic uh, book. It was, you know, a history and sort of a, uh, you know, a, a novelistic history, but a history. Uh, I, I would, I would put the right stuff in there. But let's have the, the listeners call in, write in, email us, and and we'll we'll get back to Adrian with your list so he can put it in the second edition or the paperback edition of the Aristocracy of Talent: How Meritocracy Made the World. The new book by Adrian Woolridge of the Economist. Uh, just a fascinating discussion. Adrian, thank you for taking time to talk with us about Asia, about China, about the civilizational suicide we may face if we don't get meritocracy right. Uh, And we appreciate you being on the Pacific Century. Thank you very much. So for the Pacific Century, I'm Misha Oslin. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.